Obvious. Offensichtlich. Obviamente. Achividna. Obvious. Obviously. Obvious, the podcast. Welcome to Obvious, the podcast. A podcast where we talk about overlooked aspects of obvious things. This podcast is produced and hosted by Astrid Gopion, Theresa Mayenka and me, Sasha Tian. In this first season, we will talk about something everyone has, a name. And to start with, we'll share some stories about our own. My name is Sasha, but the first name in my passport is actually Alexandra. A lot of people outside of the Russian-speaking world find it confusing. But in Russia and other former Soviet republics, Sasha is the most natural diminutive version of Alexandra, just like Shura, Shurik, Shusha and Alia. Hi, I'm Astri. I was born in France, but both my parents are immigrants of Armenian descent. My dad came from Ethiopia and my mother from the Soviet Republic of Armenia. They both wanted to give me a name that was Armenian, but also sounded kind of nice in French. So in the end, they agreed on Astrig with a G at the end. But the thing they did not think about is that that name actually sounds a lot like the name Astrid with a D at the end, which is more or less popular across Europe. So basically, people generally end up calling me Astrid. Even on my badge at work, it says Astrid. And I now directly introduce myself as Astrid with a G at the end. That's my full name. Thanks, mom and dad. Hi, my name is Teresa Meinka. Looking up my family name on a couple of genealogy pages, I realized it occurs most often in Germany, with nearly 4,000 people being called Meinka, which is actually a lot, above average for surnames. In second place is Poland, with a little over 1,000 cases. And then, which I didn't know, is that Meinka apparently is also a first name in Kenya. But yeah, although I've seen all kinds of funny spelled versions of Meinka in letters and documents or people pronouncing it Mainka instead of Meinka, concerning my first name, I barely had any problems in my life. In Paris, some professors have added my second name, calling me Theresa Marlene, which doesn't sound too bad, does it? And back in the days, I remember when I went to clubs and introduced myself to someone, a very common reaction was, ah, like Mother Teresa. So I guess I was a saint on the dance floor. <laughs> But yeah, born to white parents with no migration history further than Hamburg, I do acknowledge that I've grown up very privileged and I never had to face any discrimination because of my name or how I identify. As you will hear in this podcast, this reality is very different for many people. Hey, Sasha here again. When I first started off as a journalist, the newspaper readers would constantly ask me if my name Tian was real. Apparently, Tian in manga and anime is a cute name for a girl. And kids in school were constantly making fun of it because it was so short and Asian. With time, I grew prouder of my name, as I realized there was much more to it than just a line in my passport. Behind every name, there's a history and a sometimes painful legacy. A name can be more precious than an old photograph in a trunk. When thinking about those aspects of names, I realized I wanted to start the episode with my grandparents. I am Tian Anatoly. That's my granddad, Tian Anatoly. Everyone is meant to have a patronymic in Russia. It's something like a second name, but you don't get to pick it. It's a derivative of your father's name. My father is called Vladimir, so my patronymic name is Vladimirovna, just like President Putin's. President of Russian Federation, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. 
In English-speaking countries, second names are often arbitrary and you might not even know that the person's second name is, but in Russia, a patronymic is a big deal. Not only do we have a separate line for it in our passports, basically everyone who's younger than you or who needs to address you in an official setting is going to call you by a patronymic. So in England, you'd call your teacher Mrs. Jones. And when I was little, I used to call mine Tatiana Sergeyevna, after her dad, Sergei. The peculiar thing about my granddad is that he doesn't have a patronymic. Dmitrievich, uh, but I do not have a patronymic in my documents because I don't have one in my birth certificate. That's why when I was issued my passport, it was the same as my birth certificate, uh, Tian Anatoly. His father's name was Tian Din Von. He was a Korean immigrant, among those who settled in the Far East region of Russia and were then deported to Central Asia. My granddad and his sisters don't know the exact story, but most likely people at the registry office simply didn't know how to make a patronymic from a Korean name and left it blank. I've never met my great-grandparents, and neither of my grandparents speak Korean. In fact, both of them, as well as their brothers and sisters, were given very ordinary Soviet names. Because we'd lived in Russia for quite some time by that point, uh, my mother was born in Russia, in the Far East. My father, well, he wasn't born in Russia, but still. It wasn't just in our family. I don't know anyone who was a citizen of the Soviet Union and gave their children Korean names. I don't know anyone at all. It was so that nobody would ask any questions, like, why is it like this? Uh, probably so that children don't end up in uncomfortable situations. So to me, that blank space in his passport actually means a lot. It's a trace of Koreanness that got erased in the Soviet period, a space where, in my head, I put my great-grandparents' names, Din Von and Hivon. The Soviet period left traces in other families too, not just mine. The big victories of socialism were instantly reflected in babies' names. You see, it was sort of a fashion trend, uh, like a wave, uh, how should I put it, of, of people who built socialism. For example, they'd called us son Revo and the daughter Lucia. Together that makes Revolucia, uh, revolution. Six years after Gagarin became the first man in space, classrooms were filled with boys named Yura, the first name of the first man in space. As funny as some of these stories are, deep down, I can't help but wonder how painful it must have been. As an immigrant, forced to leave everything behind, including your family, to have to sacrifice your name too. I catch myself thinking how much I'd wish to talk to my great-grandparents about it, but I'll never get that chance. Well, actually, I did get that chance. That's my colleague, Astrid Gopion. My father had a similar experience, except that it was not really his choice. He was forced to change his name. Forced? Well, he was kind of tricked into it when he was getting his French nationality. Here's his story. My name is Antranik Antoine Agopian. On my previous papers, it was Antranik Agop Agopian. But on my French papers, since I became French, my name is Antoine Agopian. That's my father. He was born in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. His father was an orphan and survivor of the Armenian Genocide, and his mother was from Lebanon. They had a daughter, Aida, and a son, my father. They called him Antranik. 
which is not just any name for Armenians. It means the eldest, but also it was the name of an army general who is one of the most emblematic figures of the Armenian resistance against the Turks. He was a big resistant who fought against and had to go into exile afterwards because Armenia ended up losing the war. But still it was thanks to him that the Armenians were able to keep a part of their territories that then became Soviet Armenia. And it's a name he actually liked, that, you know, meant a lot to him. Actually, they probably chose it because it was my grandfather's name. But it's also true that since my grandfather died during the genocide, my father, who was born around that time, and then himself had a child several years after, decided to give the name because it happened to be his lost father's name, as well as a great Armenian hero's name. Yes, I liked it. Moreover, I felt like through that first name I was bringing back life. It was a revenge for my father, who never knew his father. So, my father's family already had to face a lot of hardships. Genocide, loss of relatives, friends, goods, everything. They had finally set up in Ethiopia, under the reign of Emperor Aile Selassie, who had welcomed the Armenians because of their religious proximity. A revolution was declared. In southern Ethiopia, the emperor's regime was overthrown by the army. But in 1974, a communist revolution took place in Ethiopia. And they didn't want foreigners to stay in the country. Like most people from the Armenian community, my father and his family had to flee again. They could not go back to what had now become modern Turkey. They could not go to Soviet Armenia. So they considered Lebanon. But the civil war, which lasted until 1990, was just starting at that time. April 13th, 1975, a church in the Ein Romana suburb of Beirut. The civil war had begun. My father, he had always dreamed of living in the country of human rights, France, so it was now or never. But at the time it was very difficult to settle in France. Actually, when we arrived, they told us to go to the country from which you have the nationality. That is to say Lebanon, since you have a Lebanese nationality. But right at that time, the Lebanese civil war was beginning. Even the family we had there who had lived in Beirut were actually thinking about and preparing to leave Lebanon because of the war. So we kept on applying, and eventually they accepted us. They said we could keep living in France. So at the beginning, my grandparents only sent the kids to France. My father arrived at the age of 10 in a small Armenian boys' school in the suburbs of Paris, and he did not speak any French. He had grown up in Africa and suddenly arrived in snowy France in the winter. No mobile phones or Skypes or Zooms at the time. He could only contact his parents through letters, waiting for a full month to get an answer. After a few months, his parents had to leave too. The whole family was reunited in France. And after a few years and many renewable residence permits, they applied for citizenship. But when applying, a question surprised my father. When we were filing our documents for the application, they asked us if we wanted to change our first name, and at the time, Armenian names were rare. I even knew people to whom the town halls had refused Armenian names for their children. First he asked me why I had refused the suggestion to change my name when I was submitting my application. 
Then I told him that my first name had a very important significance for me because of my family history and as an Armenian. My father did not want to change his name. The officer offered him to at least take a second name that would be French. He accepted and suggested Antoine very randomly, and then they all had to wait for a few months. They were starting to get worried because they had no news, so one day my father just literally went into the Minister of the Interior in Paris and asked. And I got out of there so happy and called my parents. But that was the moment when I had the surprise to see on those papers my first name, as in my Armenian first names, had vanished. And there was the French first name, Antoine, with my name, Agopian. And on the decree of citizenship signed by the Minister of Work at the time, it was written that my former names, Antranik and Hagop. And at that moment, I was a bit shaken and unhappy. I felt like they had stolen a part of my identity. And then I immediately said to the public agent, Sir, I had agreed for the name Antoine to be added, but now there is only that first name changed. It is not okay. So he was really angry and asked what he could do about it. to get a lawyer and start a judicial procedure to ask them to add my Armenian first names that should not have disappeared in the first place, according to me. He told me that maybe I had misunderstood. So I explained to him that no, I had not misunderstood, that I was extremely sure of what I had told, that I was fine with him adding the first name, but that we did not even discuss erasing my Armenian first name. But when I understood that I had to spend a lot of money and uh, get a lawyer and start a procedure that would last several years, etc., well, I understood that I just could not do it. At the time, my family and I could barely support ourselves and could not pay for something like this because we had lost our belongings and we were at a stage of economic survival. Then eventually, well, I got used to it. But it's true that it stayed somewhere inside me, actually. It would have been better if they explained that I had to take a French name. Maybe I would have taken some time to consider it. I would have chosen a name I liked. And maybe then, with such a name, I would have reconciled with the name change quicker. Some of his old friends still call him Antranig and my mother and his sister too. So a lot of them who, for example, call me on the phone, a friend I met when I arrived in France in the first year of middle school says, hello, Antranik, how are you, etc. To him, Antoine does not exist. So what is going on, Antranik? Are you betraying your origins, changing your name, calling yourself Antoine now? We don't know Antoine, we know Antranik. This is a very powerful testimony. It makes me wonder... You have an Armenian name, actually. You are a daughter of immigrants and a French citizen. Why, after all this, did your parents still give you an Armenian name? Well, as a kid, I wished my name was Julie or something really French. So I was actually wondering the same thing. Here's my father's answer. With time, things evolved and I figured that almost every community now gives names of their origins to their children. 
I think that if we took the time to understand the history and past experiences with everyone, things would be better. You could say that those things are in the past and, you know, that in today's Europe, these things are non-existent anymore. But you would be wrong, right, Sasha? Yes, actually. Names still can be a source of discrimination, even on an administrative level. And I have an interesting story to share. The story is about a girl named Sandra. When I first met her, I didn't know about the history of her name, though I admit it did intrigue me. But I remembered her as the girl who couldn't get a bank account or a travel pass because of her name. Sandra is 26, and like me, she was born in Russia but is a descendant of Korean immigrants. She moved to Paris three years ago. So, my name is Alexandra, so it's like Greek-Russian name, let's say. Uh, and my surname is U in Russian. That's right. U. Just one letter. And when they say me, oh, was that Madame U? <laughs> In Korean, that would be Wu, uh, which sounds strange for me, unusual. Uh, and I found actually my letter in Korean now, and this letter looks like um, like a little like a, like like a little human, like with uh, spread arms. <laughs> so it's funny, I like it. It's not just a, an ordinary surname; it's a surname of uh, of the king. It's a surname which has really uh, like let's say aristocratic roots everyone thinks of course first thing it's that's a mistake i mean there is there is a mistake you didn't finish when i put my surname they say no put your surname please i'm like yeah that's my surname no but finish your surname <laughs> like okay if it's finished it's done that's my surname actually and people don't believe me they're like say what no god please no no what there are there are millions of calls to like air companies like explaining please look this is my surname i cannot buy a ticket on your website could you help me to do this and they're like what do you mean this is your surname so i need to tell the story look like i'm korean i was born in russia that's my surname that's in my passport and, la, la, la. and all this story like million of times <laughs> And since she's moved to France from Russia, has it become easier for her? You'd expect so, right? But actually quite the opposite. So Russia is known for its corrupt government structures, and in Sandra's case, this is actually what made it easier for her to deal with all these administrative problems. Of course, like in any country, there were rules to follow, but in most cases there were humans who could help her find a loophole in the rule and sort it out. And in France, that wasn't the case. In France, actually, that's really difficult because um, the French system, especially the administration system, is like super, super strict. When I just arrived to France, to Paris, uh, I couldn't open my bank account. And you know how in, in Paris it's important, like, if you are a foreigner, staying in France, like, more than uh, six months, I think, it's law, so it's obligatory that you have to have a bank account. And actually, um, I, I, I was in Saint-Denis and I, I think I visited all the banks of Saint-Denis. So it was like about 10 or 11 banks. At some point, Sandra became quite desperate. She actually went to the National Bank of France with a mindset, if they can't help her there, nobody will be able to. They were like, oh, we never had this situation. I mean, we don't know what to do. No, like, don't come to us. 
<laughs> you know, like people were like kind of avoiding me. Oh no, it's our game with <laughs> this like one letter surname. <laughs> so, but finally, yeah, because they don't have choice in Spanish or France, it's them actually who should like do something. So, I don't know what they did, but they they gave me a letter, like explaining this, this, this. Well, that sounds like a long, difficult, and tedious process. And did it ever happen that she just you know, couldn't do something because it didn't work? Luckily, no. The only thing she couldn't do was to put her real name on her Vkontakte page. That's like a Russian version of Facebook. And then she always sort of expects technical issues when she books things. Aside, you know, administrative issues, did the name ever cause her other difficulties? Was she, you know, discriminated? Yeah, she said kids would make fun of her because of her name. That was back in Russia, where she lived in a small city called Yesintuki in the south. Actually, ironically, dozens of nationalities live in this city. It's located in the mountains of the North Caucasus. There are Georgians, Armenians, Dagestani, Koreans and Russians. I always felt that I'm in... I'm not in my territory. I'm, like, you know, like little, especially children. Uh, they were saying, ah, oh, yes, like you, like kind of Chinese and all this. I always felt like I shouldn't be Asian, actually. I should be like uh, Russian. Did she ever think of changing her name to avoid all these issues? Yeah, that definitely crossed her mind. But eventually, after all these years, she's grown attached to it, you know. I feel like now she really cherishes it. Even my, my mom, she, she would propose me many times to change my surname. Uh, and I was asking, okay, but for which one? Because my mom's surname, it's like typical, typical Korean surname. And there are like millions of Koreans with the surname Kim. I decided that actually, you know, it's like when you pass so many things, you don't want actually after to just to abandon this because already so many things have done and you feel like much stronger because I was fighting for this, for my surname actually. So I don't want to change it anymore. I'm wondering what that makes her think about the future. Would she like for the name to go on despite the fact that her children might have the same difficulties that she's had? I actually asked her about that, you know, and she was very optimistic about it. I would let them choose. I would let them choose, yeah. Mm. But maybe, okay, if I'm sure that by that time maybe something will change in the world and <laughs> the surnames of one letter will be accepted, I think it would be, it would be cool, it would be beautiful. In this episode, we've already heard stories behind two names. Here's the last one for today. It's the story of Mohammed Amgar, who had to work under a made-up name for 20 years because his employer didn't think his name was French enough. Astrid, how exactly did this happen? Mohammed Amgar worked for 20 years under another name, Antoine. And Mohammed is now suing his company that he has left for retirement. He had joined them in the late 1990s. I applied for this job by mid-1996. Mohamed was an engineer. And uh, the interview, the various interview I had lasted about two months to end up by having a verbal confirmation of my future boss that I was uh, okay to start and uh, it's just about to sign a contract. It should be noted that I had this verbal confirmation, but no contract. I haven't 
signed any contract at the time he told me, okay, you're fit for the job. It took about two more months before I had a, a call from that company to come to the uh, office to sign my contract. But then, when Mohamed goes back to sign the contract, his future boss makes an unusual request. He said, you'll have to change your name. That's that hard. He was, he was okay, very embarrassed, uh, I have to say. And he said, I didn't say anything, actually. I was shocked. It, it was a mixed feelings, like... Uh, shocking and shamed. Shame because why I was in my 40s, I had about 15 years of experience, I never had any problem so far. At least the people that were not happy to hire a Mohammed haven't <laughs> said anything. I knew that racism existed. I was not naive. I knew that Mohammed was not the best uh, a key opener uh, to have that kind of job in, the, in France. But I lived with this and uh, uh, even if it was, it was not easy for me. So Mohammed had to change his name. Now at work, he was Antoine. On his business card, in front of clients, he was Antoine Amgar. Not on the contract or his passport, of course, and his colleagues knew about it, some even called him by his real name. But Mohammed did not tell his relatives. I was so ashamed that I didn't tell my father because he suffered from racism almost all his life. He's born in Algeria. He came to France in just after the Second World War. His father came to France after the First World War. My mother joined him early 50s or late 40s. I knew he had a very tough life when it came to racism. Someone like him born in the colony, uh, immigrating to France. It, it was not immigration, by the way, because uh, Algerian born were considered as French, but not real French. Huh? They were having a special status given by the very creative French administration. L'Afrique. L'Algérie aussi. L'Algérie, c'est la France. Algeria had a very specific place among the French colonial empire. It was actually considered part of France and divided in three administrative regions. And the local colonized people were considered French, but second-class citizens. And it's still a very painful part of the French history. So now, back to Mohammed. It's quite something to be the son of Algerian immigrants living in France who became an engineer and then to be asked to, you know, erase your Algerianness. It was pretty tough because I felt double shame because first I had to accept this and second I have to tell the other what happened to me. So this is just like okay you have to apologize to what you did. And there were also a few quite absurd situations related to the name change. We are traveling to the US, they book me and to me and my colleagues uh, tickets and uh, the ticket was booked under the name of Antoine. My ID, everything is with Mohammed. I show up to the, to the registration, <laughs> presented my ticket 
and my passport and it was before 9-11 the checking were lighter anyway it they were checking if especially for uh, when you are traveling to the US the guy told me mister uh, your ticket is Antoine and your passport is Mohammed you cannot board I haven't this is an issue for us you, wh what is it so I I entered and I tried to explain him it was very humiliating huh? needless to say huh? it was a pure humiliation to me to explain okay uh, this is a business name sir uh, my real name my only name is Mohammed Mohammed went through a special personal journey too that led him to decide to sue this is something that of course is impacting your life almost every day imagine yourself when you leave home you become another person and all the day until late in the same day you are another this another person trying to play the role in the same time trying to forget it because you can't have this over your head all the day saying okay it's it's crazy it's it's a crazy situation five days a week four weeks a month and 12 months a year for 20 years i never never had the 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 pleasure to be rewarded or congratulated or known as Mohammed for things that I've done well and it's a big frustration because it was so huge so shameful I felt myself trapped because they waited until the last not the last minute the last second to ask me this I felt this as a betrayal so the confidence was lost on day one I didn't know how it will be done when but I knew it will happen Mohammed's story happened in the 90s but the issue remains relevant for generations that came after him we are in the 21st century when you are called Malika or Yasmina or Mohammed or Mouloud your CV is dumped to the bin regardless of what you are doing uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking about okay first line and front line jobs huh? I'm not speaking about back office when you are on the front line we are still in this regardless of the education and this is something that I very afraid of Antoine, Sandra, Anatoly these names had you seen them on someone's airplane ticket or a Facebook page would seem plain, ordinary, maybe even boring but behind them hide stories of family history, memories and pain invisible to the surface next time I meet someone I won't dismiss their names that easily because their meaning often is not that obvious This story has been made possible by Are We Europe, a new media that gives you a new perspective through its border-breaking stories. For too long, journalism about Europe has been a one-way information flow about Brussels, Brexit and borders. As a young outlet, they're building a truly pan-European media for a changing continent. 
To bridge the gap between creators and listeners or readers, Our Europe is now launching a membership program. If you love independent, surprising and solutions-driven journalism, become a member now at ourEurope.com slash member. Obvious the podcast is produced by Astrid Gopion, Sasha Tian and Theresa Mayenka. Our illustrator is Julia Fatchin and our jingle is the work of Pika Fröhlich. Thanks to Marta Foldy and Trudvis Coxet for giving our guests voices in English. In the next episode, we will talk about what it's like to be a Karen in 2020s and what makes a name black or white.